Hiya, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. As I sit here, I'm steaming gently as I got absolutely caught in a downpour while riding my bicycle back from the supermarket. Um, it's scary enough anyway with bags balanced on the handlebars, but it's even worse in pouring rain. But uh, I survived and I'm here, uh, a bit wet, but otherwise un unscathed, and I'll talk you through the week's posts. So the first post up was the uh, usual links I liked on a Monday. Um, <clears throat> this time I, I cut and paste a, a chart from The Economist. Every week it updates a global COVID chart with some really uh, powerful numbers. They're calculating a sort of rolling figure of the excess deaths. For, um, so that is how many deaths have, a, have been recorded compared to a typical year, because that can give a much uh, more accurate picture of how many people are dying from COVID when a lot of actual COVID deaths go unrecorded as COVID. So you just count the excess deaths instead. And what you get to is roughly 16 million so far, four times the official death toll, which is pretty shocking. So that means three out of every four people who died from COVID probably are not being recorded. The other thing they've started doing in recent months is um, to uh, record the number of jabs, number of vaccinations people have had in low-income, middle-income and high-income countries. And the current rate is five per 100 people in low-income countries compared to 132 in rich countries. And I saw a figure today, which I'll be putting in next week's links I liked, which is that um, there have been three times more booster shots in rich countries than they have first shots in low-income countries. So vaccine injustice is, is extraordinary and deeply, deeply depressing and is making a lot of people very angry indeed. It's becoming one of the big fault lines, I think, in the sort of global justice campaign. Second post of the week was a rant from me. Um, every year about now, there's a thing called the Open Access Week. And uh, I'm a, a passionate believer in open access. I've been on the outside of academia and got really frustrated with, for example, academic journals that are only actually visible to people who work in universities or students. Um, and if you're in an NGO and you're trying to find out stuff, it's really frustrating not to have a, a, um, a access to a university library. But this post was actually about books because uh, I've become a firm believer in open access books, which is a much less developed conversation. So the, um, the attempt at clickbait in the title is, want a secret source to increase the readership for your next book by a factor of at least 10? Here it is. So the starting point is I've had a, a repeated conversation with different colleagues in the last few months, and that's usually a, a, a signal that I need to write a post about it. Um, and this one is about open access, and the conversation usually goes something like this. Me, have you thought about open access? Would-be author, give me a break. I need to write the book first. I'm still wrestling with the ideas and trying to find a narrative. Publishing details will have to wait. If you wait, then it's too late. So I witnessed, you know, my own uh, books go open access. And in particular, I've tracked the numbers on my last book, How Change Happens, up until for the first four years. I'm not going to do it again this year. There are limits even to my narcissism. But up to October 2020, for every uh, one book that was actually sold, five people downloaded the PDF and 15 people read it online. So that multiplied the actual readership by about a factor of 20 and produced two, over 200,000 readers. Um, so I was really happy with that. 
Um, and not only that, but if you publish just in hard copy, you usually sell for a couple of years and then it's got a very short tail. Open access copies go on and on and on. They get onto reading lists you know, uh, and, and they have much longer tails. So actually the numbers just get better and better as time goes on. So I looked around and found some yeah, research on a, on a, a, a proper number of books, not just mine. Um, and it found similar figures, actually. It's, it found that downloads of open access books were on average 10 times higher than those of non-open access books. And citations of open access books were 2.4 times higher than average. Now, that's really important for academics because, you know, citations are a key metric for how much you're you know, being listened to. And it's particularly true, I think, if you're writing about things like international development, where you want to have a readership in lower middle income countries. And there the publishing industry is often quite uh, fragmented, not many book, books uh, being imported or they're very expensive. So open access is particularly useful if you're trying to get that sort of global footprint. Um, <clears throat> I then found another piece on the LSE Impact blog, which is an excellent blog. Um, and it, but it suggests that open access in books is about a decade behind uh, the debate on academic journals. So just like with journals, publishers are introducing processing charges for authors, um, typically £5,000 to £12,500 per book. So, you, so that can come from research funders, it can come from institutions, it can come from authors if the authors are willing to stump up the cash. Um, research funders are starting to insist on open access books as they've long done for uh, academic journal papers. And there have been some nice disruptive academic um, presses starting up committed to open access. So I think the, um, the walls are crumbling uh, around the closed gated book model. Um, but that's not the only issue, I think. So the other repeat conversation I have with authors is, um, why does your book cost 80 pounds? Or in one recent case, 265 pounds. And they said, well, you know, we, no one told us. We did it. The first thing we knew, we got a copy of the finished book, we celebrated, and then we noticed the price. Well, come on, guys. Yeah, you've got to actually have that conversation from the start with the publisher. You want to know which list you're in, because the same university press, for example, will do some more trade-type books, as they call books for bookshops, which will be 10, 15 pounds. And then these very, very academic books, which are only aiming to sell to 300 libraries, and they'll whack a big you know, price on that, 80 pounds or whatever, and that means that no one else is going to buy it. So you've got to get into that. Um, so I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for open access. I had a bit of a, a, a tetchy exchange with my friends at the Institute of Development Studies, um, but I think it's a difficult subject. You know, academics need to get published. The, the presses have got a bit of a stranglehold. How do we loosen that stranglehold and give people more options in terms of getting access to all this knowledge that we are supposed to be producing? Third post of the week was a guest post by Amber Parks, excuse me, Anam Parvis Butt, Marianne Sharples and Vivian Schwarz-Bloom. And it was about the care economy. And it was for people who want to get serious about the care economy. Um, so, and the idea is that they've come, they've come up, a number of organisations, including Oxfam, have developed an important new advocacy tool, uh, the Care Policy Scorecard. And it's basically a rating. It's like, you know, TripAdvisor or Uber or whatever. Yeah, everything gets a rating these days. Um, so this is how do you rate a government's policies on care economy? Because we know that all human beings depend on care throughout their lives. And we know that it's mainly women and girls and they get all the responsibility and that either paid nothing or paid very badly. So 
we've yeah there's so much is known but how do you actually get into the details of different government uh, uh policies and performance and this is what they've come up with and i think it's it's a it's a very useful tool for anyone who wants to actually take the talk on care economy past a fairly general rhetorical level into actually comparing government performance so it's it's organized into three key policy areas unpaid care work paid care work and cross-sectoral policy and each one gets a, a mark um, and how do, and, and the, the idea is you can then assess your government and see whether it's improving over time compare it to other governments and that, use it as a basis for a discussion on where governments are falling down so how do governments score a five-star rating in the care policy scorecard first of all policies have to not only exist on paper but have a sufficient budget attached to them follow the money they also need to address restrictive gender norms around care work being seen as women's work, guarantee the rights of both those giving and receiving care, and ensure quality care services are available and accessible to all. Lastly, they have to ensure that those who are directly affected by these policies, i.e. carers and care receivers, are involved in making them. So I think it's quite a sophisticated uh, scorecard. I think if, um, if anybody wants to pick it up and use it, I think we can learn a lot just as people try and implement it and I think it's a very good step forward. Now the next post of the week was a piece from me on Myanmar. Now writing about Myanmar at the moment is a bit tricky um, because you can't mention institutions, you can't mention names, especially of people inside Myanmar because it's just very dangerous there at the moment. But um, I managed to, uh, to work around those constraints and write a piece about one of my favorite methodologies um, which is diaries. So this is something um, uh, actually, uh, I remember the first conversation I had about it was with Anu Joshi from the Institute of Development Studies in a restaurant in Myanmar, actually, many uh, four or five years ago, just saying, well, there's this interesting work on diaries, on financial diaries. Why don't we apply it to other stuff? What about governance diaries? Diaries where you see how people resolve their problems, uh, who they ask for help, which institutions do they turn to state institutions? Do they turn to the local faith leader or local strongman or who is it that people use to resolve their their problems and that's picked up a lot in, in Myanmar and has carried on throughout first Covid and the coup so we had a, a really interesting conversation on zoom uh, about how the governance diaries have adapted to these two very big shocks um, and the thing about it is at the moment you really can't do research easily in Myanmar but they've managed to do this and it's a kind of fly on the wall account of what's going on on the ground when virtually every other attempt to get any information is very, very difficult. Um, so uh, a little bit about um, the methodology. Hold on a second, let me turn the page. So they started off with, um, yeah, before the coup, uh, before COVID with, with, I think, students going in, talking to people from their home communities. Um, after the coup, suddenly trust became the big, uh, the big issue. So interviews have mainly been with trusted contacts uh, and shifted exclusively to phone and internet because you can't just wander about with a tape recorder. Um, and security of data has become really important. So one of the researchers talked about working really late into the night because they had to transcribe uh, the interviews, process them, and then delete them by the time they go to bed. And that's with the power coming off and on because uh, Myanmar's in such a terrible state. And then get them off their laptop, up into the cloud, so that it, so that everybody is safeguarded. So that's like the extra level 
of, of work required of researchers in one of these situations. And what did they find? Well, they found increasing unity across different ethnic groups, which is really interesting. And people in the central regions, the dominant Burma group, suddenly starting to show deeper understanding and sympathy for ethnic struggles. Now they too are under fire. Um, but also some divisions, especially between the generations. So the younger people, as younger people tend to do, you know, more, more willing to resist, more willing to join the civil disobedience movement. Older people worrying about them getting into trouble, not wanting to get into trouble themselves and wanting to stick to, for example, giving money to monasteries and monks, whereas the younger people want to give it to the civil dis disobedience movement. Very interesting changes on the Rohingya. Uh, Rohingya, sorry. Um, growing recognition that the Rohingya have suffered severe discrimination. Up to now, it's been actually very difficult in the rest of Myanmar because I think there was quite a lot of support for the repression of the Rohingya. Um, that's now changing. Um, younger people in particular have stopped calling them foreign nationals, which was the narrative that was used to justify their, their repression. Older people, again, slower to do that. On women and gender, um, safety, security, rule of law continue to deteriorate. There was an initial surge in women's participation, I think of the Sarong movement, um, but many are now afraid to get involved and they're discouraged by their family from leaving home. And there's been a return to more traditional decision-making structures as the state has effectively collapsed. And those traditional structures, village leaders and so on, tend to be very male-dominated. Um, let me just look what else we've got. Uh, so at the level of politics, um, you've got two big bodies. You've got the, um, the, 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 the military government and you've got this opposition national unity government. Um, and expectations of both the national unity government, the opposition government, which is in exile, and the ethnic armed organizations, which control large parts of the, of the, of the uh, border areas of Myanmar, are very high. And many believe that authorities should prioritize internal coordination and collaboration over international engagement. So that's pretty interesting. People are saying, okay, we want a lot from the from the national unity government and the ethnic armed organizations. And the key thing is they've got to work together. So in a very what was a very polarized politics before the uh, before the coup, that's quite potentially very exciting. Um, a lot of participation and support for the people's defense forces, which are kind of nascent armed resistance forces, but big regional differences with a lot more skepticism about the national unity government in the ethnic areas. Um, they still think it's too dominated by the majority Bamar group uh, and Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the National League for Democracy, even though Aung San Suu Kyi is on trial. Interfaith collaboration has increased, helping to resist regime attempts to stoke religious conflict, which is also interesting, although the regime has bought off many senior religious leaders. Um, and then the final conversation was about what are the implications for outside actors, donors, other governments, and so on? What should they be seeking to do at this very you know, difficult time? Support this interfaith collaboration, which is spreading uh, at the moment. Fund spaces for debate and deliberation to try and defend pre-coup gains against the deteriorating rule of law and erosion of local government. Find less explicitly political points of entry like climate change or gender. Build understanding between the generations. Support emerging future civil society leaders and networks. Support these longer term efforts to rethink the federalism 
a kind of inclusive federalism, including the ethnic minorities, which could come after the military finally stepped down. So do that early building and thinking and sort of conceptualizing idea. And then adaptive funding for self-help groups that have become crucial channels for essential services as the state collapses. So a very substantial conversation. And I hope people who want to do something in Myanmar uh, uh, read it. And, um, and if they want help getting in touch with the authors and the people doing that work, I'm happy to do so. Final point of the week was a cri de coeur, a cry from the heart. I'm doing some work for the United Nations, uh, really interesting stuff, putting together a training package on humanitarian influencing. So if anybody follows my blog, you'll know I'm going to be talking about political economy analysis, thinking and working politically, analysing the context, understanding power, all that stuff, right? And I attach my latest slide set to the post just for people who want to look at it. But I'm looking for case studies and I'm not finding any. There's lots of examples in other bits of the aid sector, especially governance and institutional reform. That's all that stuff on adaptive management and doing development differently that I've covered a lot on the blog. Um, lots of examples of people doing it badly in the humanitarian space. Uh, for example, a piece by a, a book by Alex Duval, which I reviewed. But there aren't many, I haven't found any examples of good practice, of things actually working. So I put out a call and I have to say, half a day in since I published that post, I have received almost nothing, but fingers crossed, maybe people are just thinking about it and looking looking up, you know, old case studies or whatever. We really need to demonstrate more effective approaches to influencing in the humanitarian sector because the humanitarian sector is coming along with this idea that you can't just, you know, distribute tents and blankets. You've got to try and engage with the politics which is causing the emergency in the first place. You've got to try and, you know, think working coalitions, a whole bunch of challenges which people are finding very difficult. So we really need some examples to inspire and inform. So if you do know of such examples, please drop me a line. And on that note, have a great weekend. Talk next week. Bye.